nothing does compare to the promises that you have made and the certainty we can have that you will keep those promises this morning you've directed us in your word we're going to look at three great promises you've made a promise of how you relate to us a promise of the reality of the life you've chosen us to live and a promise about your assistance in the fractured relationships we have around us and so I pray now that as we come to that we would believe your promise for some, for the very first time, we've come to trust Jesus with our lives. That will be this morning, our big step. And for others, a great necessary reminder of promises we have forgotten or come to doubt that you have made and you will keep. So speak, O Lord, as we seek to hear. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please do take a seat this morning. Thank you very much to Jeff and Steve, uh, doing a great job leading us. If you have a Bible... I wonder if you'd open it up to 1 Peter. If you've got one of the church's Bible and Sue or Lawrence uh, or Agnes will bring you one. Just put a hand up in the air if you'd like a Bible. Please do have a Bible if you'd like one. It's page 1,221. It's 1 Peter chapter 5. Uh, page 1,221. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to look at the last... Uh, three or four sentences, chapter 5, sentence 12 to 14. Slightly unhelpfully, it's called a final greeting. I think it's much more than just a final greeting. Um, imagine for a moment, just so I can help you understand what Peter's doing here. Imagine for a moment a teen captain, and it's her final few words in her big pep talk before her players run out onto the pitch for the biggest game of the season. Her last words really matter because they're going to resound in the hearts of those players, get the heart pumping and the confidence high and the mojo in the right place for that team to perform as best they possibly could. Conscious last words from a captain, they really, really matter, don't they? Or, or imagine uh, how much time and effort and energy goes into sculpting the final words a politician makes at the end of his speech because his communication team know that those final words are going to blast across hashtag social media and be picked up within minutes across the globe. And so those last final words are worth getting just right. Or think of uh, Jeff leading our song worship this morning. Uh, he would have chosen, I hope, chosen well a, a final song. I think it's one I chose, actually. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, so let's hope, let's hope I've done it. Let's hope I've done it well, because actually there's a reality. Those last final conscious words that we sing together, don't we? We'll walk out the door and we're going to be humming that as we go home. And if you're anything like me, I wake up on Monday morning, crown him with many crowns, going round and round my head. If it came out my mouth, I'd be sleeping in a different room, wouldn't I? But it's going round and round my head because conscious last words really matter. Well, here, uh, Peter, if you like, he's like that team captain, he, he's like that politician, he's like that worship leader. He has crafted these last couple of sentences really intentionally. Let me read what they say, sentence 12. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings. And so does my son, Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. 
peace to all of you who are in Christ Jesus. Let me start by looking at the very last thing he writes. You who are in Christ Jesus. Don't lose sight of the fact that Peter is an intelligent and experienced pastor and letter writer. He has deliberately finished his letter with that phrase. You who are in Christ Jesus. See, friends, these last couple of sentences are infinitely more than just a bland, yours sincerely. They are infinitely more than just a final greeting, as it's unhelpfully called um, in the Bible and titled there. Uh, These are a final trio of penetrating (coughs) sword thrusts to get the reality of who we can be in Jesus home into our hearts. They are entirely practical and incredibly relevant for Monday morning, whatever your life is going to hold. If you're a Christian this morning, and being a Christian just means trusting Jesus, we're going to learn three massive things. Number one, we're going to learn that we have a new relationship with God, which is no longer characterised by his rightful anger at us, but about an enduring and sustaining grace and goodness towards us because of Jesus, because we're in, in Christ. Secondly, we're going to learn that there's a whole new way of relating to the world, that if you are in Christ, if you've trusted Christ, then your inevitable suffering and difficulty, whatever it might be, is not random or meaningless, but your life has been chosen by the wisest, most powerful, loving creator of the universe, particularly for you, with a reason that you are facing the difficulty or suffering you are facing. And thirdly, we're going to learn that when you are in Christ, when you trust Jesus, there is an infinite possibility that the fractured and ruptured relationships that make up human life can be healed and find peace, a ceasing of hostilities. I just, however, want to underscore two things before we get into the practicalities of that. The first, I just want to talk to you if you're not yet a Christian for a moment, or you're thinking of someone who's not yet a Christian. Do you see the you right at the end there, if you look down in your Bibles, if you've got one there, you who are in Christ Jesus? I just want to make it really clear, the you is you. The you is you, whoever you might be. Being in Christ Jesus is accessible and available to every single human being on the planet. If you are a you, it is you. Do you see that? It's like a Dr. Zeus tongue twister, isn't it? See, it doesn't matter what age you are, what education you might have experienced, how wealthy you are, what your status is in society, what level of fitness you do or don't have, what ethnic background you come from, what weight you come in and out. It doesn't matter your sexual history, your sexual preference or your sexual practice. It doesn't matter what religious heritage you come from. It doesn't matter what your past choices were, what your present reality is, what your future prospects and decision-making will be. It doesn't matter whether you're single, married, divorced, or bereaved. It doesn't matter whether you're committed, casual, or curious about faith. The you is you. So as I talk now about the wonderful privileges of being in Christ, but you are someone who knows you are out of Christ, know that all you need to do is trust Jesus. That's it. That is it. You just need to say, Jesus, I trust you. And you move from out to in. The second thing I just want to note before we get into the practicalities is this is not, and I think this is really important, and actually it's taken me nine months of studying Peter to realise how important it is to Peter. 
None of what I'm about to say is about how you feel. It is about what you know. Often we get caught by our emotions, don't we? And our emotions are inherently untrustworthy. And if we allow our living and our thinking and our believing to be driven by our emotions, make them the the engine of the train of our life, we will derail. The train needs an engine of our minds, of our thinking, to pull forward our emotions and our acts of will and our choices and our words. They are carriages, but the engine is our mind. Not what we feel, but what we know. Let me show you that in 1 Peter. Just flip back very briefly. Three times he uses a similar phrase to say, this is about what you think. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1 and sentence 13. Chapter 1, sentence 13. A third of the way down on the right-hand side. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober. Do you see that? Get your thinking right. Or look at chapter 4 and sentence Seven, turning pages is a good way to stay engaged, isn't it? Chapter four and sentence seven. The end of all things is near, therefore be alert and of sober mind. It's not about what you feel, it's about what you think and know to be true. Or look at chapter five and sentence eight. Do you see it there? Right hand column towards the bottom. Be alert and of sober minded. So I want to be really clear at the outset. That actually, as I talk about how God now sees you if you're in Christ, and as I talk about understanding God has given you your life specifically, even with all its suffering and strife, and as I talk about the possibility of ceasing hostilities in the broken relationships that are in your life, none of this is about how you feel. It is about what we know to be true from God's word. It doesn't matter if you feel like God doesn't love you. He does. It doesn't matter if you feel like your life is chaotic and out of control. It isn't. It doesn't matter if you feel like the broken relationships are are helpless and impossible to fix. They are not. It is what we know from his word, not what we feel in our hearts. Let's be sober-minded people. Does that make sense? Right, let's crack on and have a look at this then. The first thing he talks about in sentence 12, the first thing he's trying to drive home is our relationship with God. That out of Christ, and just so you know, I'm going to spend longer on number one, a bit less time on number two, shortest time on number three. Okay? So they're they're not evenly spaced, so you don't get panicky uh, in about ten minutes when we're still on point one. Okay? Don't worry. That's planned. There is a plan. Okay? This is what he says. Hallelujah. Yeah. Out of Christ, our relationship with God is characterised by rightful, deserved and just fury. But in Christ, it is saturated in lasting, enduring and titanium hard grace. Let me read sentence 12 to you and unpick it. It says this, With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly why to encourage you and testify that this is the true grace of God, stand fast in it. So mentally underline that phrase, the true grace of God, stand fast in it. He says, I've written to strengthen, encourage you and testify, tell you the truth about the true grace of God. So the question now is, well, what is the true grace of God? He must assume there are wrong understandings of this idea of grace. And there are. Some of us think grace is we just let off the hook. 
What we've done doesn't matter, we're let off the hook. Sometimes it's we think it's a failure to justly punish our crimes. We say it's not fair, God has let people off and hasn't punished that crime. Normally when we say that we're not pointing at ourselves, we're pointing at someone else, aren't we? We're very, very good at that. Sometimes we think grace is a sentimental love which ignores our faults. All of those are a phony idea of grace. What is true grace? Come with me now. In 1 Peter, Peter constantly draws our attention to the image of God as judge. So would you just flick a couple pages again with me? Go to uh, 1 Peter 1 and sentence 17. 1 Peter 1, sentence 17. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. A father who judges impartially. God has judged. Do you see that there? Or, or look with me at uh, two Peter, uh, chapter 2 and sentence 23. It's talking about Jesus now in the second clause of sentence 23. It says, Jesus entrusted himself to him who judges Justly, Do you see God as judge there? The image of God as judge. Or, or look with me lastly at chapter 4 and sentence 17. Stay with the paper chase. It's well worth it. Sentence 17 of chapter 4. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. God's household because God is the father of it. So he constantly has drawn our idea to God as a judge. A father who judges us. And is to be, we are to be fearful of that. He's reminding us of the reality of what we all know if we're honest with ourselves, which is that none of us have perfectly kept God's law. Jesus himself says what it is to follow God perfectly is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbour as yourself. It's an impossible standard to reach, isn't it? Some of us might view ourselves as we're quite good at it. We're the top of Mount Everest, and we look at others and say, well, we're at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. Those differences matter. But actually, we're trying to reach the moon, and it makes no difference where you stand on earth if you're trying to get to the moon. All of us have failed, and yet God is a judge, a just judge. He he judges people impartially. We all deserve his rightful anger and fury. Out of Christ, that is how God relates to us. Now, let's just take one of those references to God as judge and see what Peter now says that Jesus does. So let's look at the one in chapter chapter 2. We could look at any of the three, but let's look back at chapter, chapter 2. Now look at this. It's marvellous and it is remarkable. Let's pick it up in sentence 22. It's talking about Jesus as Jesus dies on the cross. He, Jesus, committed no sin and no deceit was found in Jesus' mouth. He is the exception to the rule. When they hurled their insults at Jesus, he did not retaliate. When Jesus suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Sentence 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. So we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. I want to underline the two little phrases. Uh, He, Jesus, (coughs) bore our sins. By his, Jesus' wounds, we were healed. Do you see the great idea of a substitution or exchange that is going on there? This is true grace. Let me illustrate it like this. 
And I've used this illustration before. I've actually borrowed it from a guy called Rico Tice. He borrowed it from a guy called John Chapman. He borrowed it from a guy called John Stott. He borrowed it from a guy called Charles Spurgeon. He borrowed it from a guy called Augustine. It's been around for about a thousand years, this illustration. Right? So I feel like I stand in a good, good history and heritage with it. Imagine for a moment that my hand is me and everyone else. Let's imagine it's Alex. There he is. But let's imagine it's all of us. And the lights there are God. God created us, God our Father and God our Judge. He created us for a perfect and wonderful relationship with him. He wanted us to live in such a way that there was no break in the relationship between him and us. There we are, perfect. Now imagine this Bible actually isn't the story of Jesus, but it's the story of my life. Imagine on each one of these thousand plus pages, uh, there is an episode, a day of my life. Now, if it was your life or my life, there'd be some days you'd be saying, oh yeah, have a look at this. Simon, would you read out loud to everyone on page 58, please? Because, you know, it'd be a good, good day, wouldn't it? And, oh, look, here's it. I'd flick back to when I was about 16. I scored the most amazing try in a big game. I'd be like, read that. That was the pinnacle of my rugby career at 16 years old. There we go, read it out. Some amazing days in our lives, wouldn't they? Now, there'd also be days in our lives where we would be um, a little bit more embarrassed, wouldn't we? Um, uh, please don't look at last Thursday. The way I shouted at the kids really wasn't good. Uh, please don't read page 58 because I was, I was pretty shoddy at work. And then if we're all honest, there will be other days where we would um, literally rather die than have anyone know that page is there. If we could, we would tear it out and burn it, get rid of it. We would literally rather die that no people might have access to that. Now the Bible says the story of all our lives utterly breaks that relationship and, and our father judge has to judge that sin. He is angry by it, furious by it, turning away from him. And yet we've just read that Jesus, Jesus bears our <coughs> sins. By his wounds we are healed. How does that work? Here I am under my father judge's rightful punishment because he is a good father and a good judge well imagine this hand is jesus my left hand he has a perfect relationship with god Do you remember we read there was no sin found in his life no deceit on his tongue how he behaved and what he said never ever fractured broke that relationship with god it was perfect what does it mean that he bore our sin he who had nothing or we who have it all what does that mean this. Do you see that? Do you see what Peter is saying? That actually all the punishment, all the consequences for our crimes against God, that our Father judge rightly judges, Jesus accepts upon himself when he dies. And it means we are free and we are forgiven. And friends, that is true grace. Grace is not that God doesn't care about what has been done. Grace is not that he lets us off the hook. Grace is that God, driven by his father-like love, sends Jesus to satisfy his judge-like justice. Do you see that? So let me illustrate, let me apply it like this. Imagine for a moment you're walking down the street. Okay? Outside the front of your house, or flat, or caravan. And as you walk along, you do something you know 
is a page in this book of your life that God is angry by? A little bit or a lot? Now I think in our heads, if we're trusting Jesus, we have a false dialogue happens at that moment. We think of Jesus standing by the Father and they're looking down onto the world and they see you on their street and you see what you've done and then Jesus quickly turns to the Father and says, Oh, Father, love them. Oh, Father, please just love them. They didn't mean it, just love them. We think, oh, if the Father just loves me enough, he'll let me off. That's not true grace. True grace, the dialogue between Father and Son goes like this. Jesus and the Father look down, see what we've done. And Jesus turns to the Father and says, Father judge, be just. Look at the wounds on my body, Father judge. I've already taken the punishment for that crime. You must be judged. You cannot judge the same crime twice. I've already paid the penalty for that crime. You must be just, God, and not punish one crime twice. Do you see that? And that's why Peter wants us driven by our heads, not our hearts. Because if we are driven by our hearts, our emotions, we are endlessly saying about God, does he love me? Does he love me? Does he love me? Does he love me? Like some teenage girl, I actually saw this once. Can you believe it? A teenage girl, about 13, 14 years old, holding a flower, going, he loves me. But we start to relate like to God like that, don't we? We start to kind of think, does he love me? And actually when our lives kind of, we, we start making some very poor decisions, which we all do at times, we start to doubt God's love for us. And then also when, we, when we're being particularly good and pious, we think, well, he really loves me now. And friends, God cannot love you anymore. On your worst day, when you are the worst sinner you will ever be in your whole life, God's love for you does not change because he has already loved you by sending Jesus to die on your place. He has shown his love fully and completely. We rely now on his justice. We rely on him saying, I'm a just judge. And I've already punished that crime on Jesus. I will not punish it again on you. Can you see that? I, 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 wish, I wish I could scoop out your hearts and thrust these Bible pages into them. Do you see that? It is so liberating. When I sin, it raises no question over God's love for me. Because it has already been fully displayed in Jesus. And I just say, God, I'm sorry Thank you that you are my judge. And as a perfect judge, you've already punished my crime on Jesus. And I will not face that punishment. Friends, that is true grace. Real grace. It is robust. And it is strong. It's titanium. Hard. Strong. Because it is rooted in a historical event 2,000 years ago. It has nothing to do with today. It's already been dealt with. The record has already been wiped clean when Jesus died on the cross. You are free of the punishment of your sin because God is just. So that's the first thing. Out of Christ, our relationship with God is characterised by rightful, deserved and just fury because we are taking the punishment for our failure and rebellion. In Christ... Our relationship with God is true grace, lasting, enduring, titanium hard. We are forgiven and we are free because God is just. We all just take a collective deep breath. Oh, that's a sigh. 
Ah, that three he did it. Anyway, let's have a look at the second thing, right? Now, the second thing is about have you ever wondered whether your life has meaning? So you're facing some kind of mental health challenge, you have thwarted family ambitions, your career is stunted, you have fractured relationships, your body is starting to crumble, you have a disappointing reality from what you hoped and dreamed your life would be like, you've faced a serious bereavement, you've just had a diagnosis, you just wonder what life is about. The second great thing that Peter wants to drive home as he closes his letter, these really important conscious last words, is about how we relate in the world. It's this. It's that out of Christ, our inevitable suffering is devoid of meaning. Out of Christ, suffering is devoid of meaning. You just got to hunker down and get through it. In Christ, you, individually, are purposefully and specifically chosen for your life and your life for you. And there is immense purpose to whatever suffering or difficulty you face. Let me unpack it now from the sentence. Sentence 13. Have a look. So we're on the second point, so we won't spend as long on this point as the first one. Sentence 13. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Now, the big key word there is the word chosen, but let me just unpack the stuff around it. She who is in Babylon is not code word for Peter's mother-in-law. She who is in Babylon is a, is a way of talking about the church in Rome. So Babylon was the code word for Rome. So Peter is writing to these scattered Christians who are facing real suffering in their life, and he's reminding them that the church in Rome is also suffering. Now, in their minds, Babylon also would remind them of an Old Testament story about a thousand years before when the original believers, Israel, were taken into exile in Babylon and were suffering. What Peter is trying to say is, look, the difficulty you are facing is not unique to you. Christians in Rome are suffering. Believers from a thousand years ago suffered. It is just the experience of all. And that's why he'd written back in chapter 4, verse 12, you can look at it if you'd like, he'd said, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you as though something strange was happening to you. It's, it's common to all Christians that we face life suffering. Christians get cancer. Christians have marriages that fail. Christians struggle to have children. Christians find parenting hard. Christians lose their jobs, sometimes because of their own folly and foolishness. Christians fall out with each other. Christians suffer from severe mental health challenges. It is common to all. The suffering is not unique. The shock of sentence 13 is the word chosen, isn't it? They're suffering in Rome. We're suffering as you write to us. Peter, who actually loses his life for Jesus, we're suffering, but we're chosen to suffer? Peter says yes, by a loving, sovereign, wise God. 
In fact, repeatedly through this letter, that's what he says. Chapter 2, verse 9, you are a chosen people. Chapter 1, verse 2, you have been chosen before time began for this life. And my favourite is chapter 1, sentence 1. I think this is the last cross-reference. So um, why don't we finish here? I used, to, I used to know a friend. Have a brain break while you flick two pages. Chapter 1, verse 1. I used to have a friend who played in the orchestra. And he invited Hannah and I once to go watch the orchestra play. We felt very cultured. I put on a dicky bow and everything, but very cultured. There we were. And uh, it was amazing and it was wonderful. I had no idea what was going on. About halfway through, I was, I, I was a bit bored. But afterwards, I said to him, I said, they're playing these long pieces. Like the longest piece they played was 18 minutes long. 18 minutes long without a break. And I said to him, how on earth do you all keep together at the same time? And he said, oh, Alex, actually, Alex, you might not have realised, but we don't really. I'm like, what? He says, yeah, we get all money. The trumpets get ahead and the, the bassoon is a bassoon and gets behind. And like, we don't. He said, the only thing that really matters is you start together and you finish together. Because actually, no one can tell in the middle anyway, right? <laughs> so if you all turn the page to this last cross-reference to chapter 1, verse 1, I'll feel like, oh, at least we're finishing together, aren't we? At least we're turning it together, right? That's called a filler, isn't it? Yeah, there we go, right? Chapter 1, verse 1. Look at this. We are chosen for our life. Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to God's elect exiles. Elect exiles? That seems a paradox, doesn't it? Actually, he's saying, look, you are both. You are absolutely both. Life will sometimes feel like you are an exile. Life will sometimes feel like it is going terribly wrong. Life will sometimes feel like it has lost any control and is chaotic. And sometimes that will be our own fault in the decisions we have made. You are exiles, but you are also what? Elect. At the same time, your life has been elected for you. And there is a loving, wise powerful God who has done that. Now, loving, wise, and powerful, I've chosen deliberately. Too loving to wish you harm. Too wise to have made a mistake. Too powerful not to achieve what he plans. The loving, wise, and powerful God has chosen you for your life and your life for you. You may feel exiled. You are elect. Or look at the very next word. Do you see it there? Scattered. Do you see that word, scattered? Now, it was Matt Turner who pointed this out to me about nine months ago when he taught on this passage. The word scattered there in English comes from a Greek word that can mean scattered or planted. Scattered is haphazard and random, isn't it? How did I end up here? No one's in control of this situation. It's all, I'm just scattered. Planted is intentional by someone who knows what they're doing, isn't it? And the word there, deliberately, Peter picks a word that means both. You might feel so scattered right now, friends. Scattered because what you so hoped for or thought was inevitable or even thought was your right has just been snatched out of you. It feels like the rug has been pulled out from under your street. And I remember when this most came home to me, when at 22 years old, a school friend of mine asked if I'd go to the doctor with him. I said I couldn't because I had some poxy exam, some lecture or something that I thought was more important. He went to the doctor's because he had migraine for a couple of weeks and was given three months to live. But he believed in Jesus. And he said to me, in essence, Alex, it might look like it's scattered around him. But I know that I'm planted. Amen. I'm planted. I'm here because a loving, wise, powerful God has chosen this for me. Whatever it might be. Whatever it might be. You are exiled. You are elect. 
You are scattered. You are planted. You are chosen. Chosen. We need to land, don't we? The first thing we've looked at, heads, be led by your thinking, not what you feel, but what you know. So when it comes to God, don't allow your feelings that God loves you not very much today because you've had a bad day, or God loves me loads because I've had a good day. That's your, that's your feelings. Put them back in the carriage where they belong. Get your head as the engine. You know that God will be just. You know Jesus died. It's in history. You know that he bore your sins upon himself. You know it. You know it. So when you sin today, God will be just. He's already punished that crime. He's not going to punish you. He's just. He will not punish the same crime twice. Know it. Secondly, living in the world. Inevitable suffering comes. It is not devoid of meaning. It is chosen with a purpose. And a loving, wise, sovereign God is behind it. Third and finally, and most quickly, is the third of these sentences that Peter finished with. So flick back right to the end. I know I said one more flick, but now it's two more flicks. But you know. um, It's how we relate to each other. So out of Christ, our relationships struggle to heal the fractures and reconnect the ruptures. Without Jesus, it is hard work to, to fix broken relationships. But in Christ, there is hope of those relationships being fixed. Let me read sentence 14. He says, greet one another with a kiss of love. I read that to our boys. You can imagine their reaction. <laughs> Peace to all of you who are in Christ Jesus. Now, again, this is not just a bland yours sincerely. This is not just Peter kind of putting a verbal full stop to close his letter. It's very, very deliberately chosen. The word peace there is not a sentimental internal feeling of peace. It's the external ceasing of hostilities. It's peace coming into a relationship where there was not peace. Kiss each other uh, with love. Greet one another, sorry, with a kiss of love. It's not because Peter was half French or something. It's, it's Peter's way of saying you, you cannot greet each other in a genuine way unless there is a genuine reconciliation in the relationship. Does that make sense? You might be able to play some awkward dance in the room where we kind of avoid each other, but you cannot go up to someone, and I guess in British culture, give them a firm hand hug, you know, handshake, or, you know, if you bloke a bit of a thump on the back, the A-frame, yeah? You, you can't do that authentically, greet each other authentically, unless there's been authentic reconciliation that's happened, can you? It's so hypocritical. Agree to someone like that if it's not being solved, you just cannot do it. So what Peter has in mind here, you see, is the ceasing of hostilities in, in relationships. He's saying, actually, when you have Christ on your side, the impossible becomes possible. And so what's your step? What letter do you need to write? What phone call do you need to make? What steps across the room do you need to take? What men <coughs> do you need to make? Because with Jesus, you can do it. You can do it. So there we have it. We relate with true grace to God. The just judge will not punish our crimes again if we've trusted in Jesus. We are free of the punishment. In the world, we relate as people chosen. We feel scattered, but we're planted. We feel exiled, but we're elect. He's chosen us for this life with all its pain and hardship. And he's wise and loving and powerful. There's no mistakes. And lastly, the word peace. 
that with Jesus there is every possibility of reconciliation where there is brokenness and pain. And with Jesus we can step towards that reconciliation. Let's have a minute's quiet. And then I'll pray for us. Peter says, therefore, be alert and sober minded so you can pray rightly. I pray as good and appropriate as our emotions are, we would put them in the vanguard of our life. And put what we know soberly and clearly into the engine of our life. Father God, I thank you that we can know you are a just judge and know that you have fully, finally and completely punished all of our sins and crimes on Jesus and we are free of that punishment. I thank you that you are the sovereign Lord and our life has been chosen for us, even with its suffering and difficulty. And I thank you that we can know that Jesus is the great peacemaker and draws alongside us to help us to make peace where there is war and brokenness and fracture. Spirit, I pray that your word would hone in onto the target you have in mind for it. And that word would do your work for Jesus' glory in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to stand with Jeff. You, know, you, do know the, you do know the final song, don't you? Yeah. Can you remember it? Were you listening? Crown him with many crowns. Which is a good song to sing, isn't it? Um, I don't think we took an offering earlier, did we, Jeff? No, we didn't. So if, you're, if that's the way you like to give to the work of the church, then please do. Um, and uh, if you're our guest or visiting this morning, allow the bag to pass you by. Um, we only have this one last final song. It's not going to take that long to sing, is it? Um, so just compose yourself. And just decide what is going to be most helpful to make a difference to my Monday. Do you know true grace? Do you know the chosenness of your life? God has chosen your life for you. He chose that cancer for you. He actually chose that cancer. He chose that death for you. Uh, and do you know that peacemaking God? So just, just get, it, get yourself straight. Let's, five minutes can change the world. We've got five minutes to sing to each other, crown him. Let's just not sing it as empty words or known words. Let's sing it in the context of grace chosen or peace and then commit to do something tomorrow with it yeah do something tomorrow with it